It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's real? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another What's Real podcast, episode 160. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my cohort, co-contributor, co-conspirator, and my co-tag team championship partner in podcasting, the J himself, Jerry Joris. What the fuck's going on, the J? Oh, hey, Ed, you know the J is overly pumped this week, and that's saying a lot. The What's Real podcast hits the 160s. Huge milestone there. Congratulations to the What's Real family. But the J is pumped up, and we're celebrating a legend. Oh, hell yeah, in a little bit. And I must say, I am pumped up. Hey, Ed, it's true. It's damn true. And we'll talk a little bit about that. (laughs) But the boy is ready. Let's do the double or question mark. I have no idea what you're talking about, the Jay. So uh, we have a loaded show this week. Probably too loaded, actually, for our own doing. Because the midnight hour always begins. And the witching hour, I should say. See, it's already started. It's so, already started, yeah. There you uh, go. But, but we have a double dose of WWE rivals with Stone Cold Steve Austin and Bret Hart. And, of course, Stone Cold Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels. And we are loaded up with movies this week. We have a double dose of Fridays at Midnight. We're going to go back to 1982 and talk about Gary Sherman's Vice Squad. And we're going to go to 1994. This one's going to be really interesting. This is Ray Liotta in No Escape. And, of course, the movies do not stop there. We have a double dose of Joe Bob Briggs goodness with The Last Drive-In returning. The season premiere with a uh, double feature of Lucio Fulci. We're talking 1979 Zombie and 1981's The Beyond. And, of course, we're going to be talking about some goofs and much, much more. So, the J, let's get into it, shall we? Let's go. Uh, big news, of course, around the National Football League. A.A. Ron Rogers uh, has finally gotten traded to the Jets. And, you know, it's... I've seen people kind of debate this back and forth, so I guess we might as well just get into the fold, too. So... This is what the actual trade is. So the Jets get Aaron Rodgers and the Packers' number 15th first-round pick of this year's draft and a 2023 fifth-round pick, which is the 170th overall. And the Packers get uh, pick number 13 from this year's draft, a second-round pick, a sixth-round pick, and a conditional 2024 second-round pick that becomes a first if Rodgers plays 65% of the plays. Um, so the Jay, what do you think here? Do you think uh, yeah, the Packers didn't get enough? Did you think the Jets gave up too much? Like, how, how are you looking at this one? I'm looking at, at it as good riddance. Hey, Ed, we've been That's talking true. about this for so long. We know how the Aaron Rodgers offseason drama goes. And this year has been as brutal as ever with the talks going dormant for a couple weeks here. I, you know, I was telling you, we went on a, a family trip weeks ago and I was in New Orleans and I saw a thing come up that the talks had, had stalled. So that's going back weeks ago, um, you know, but obviously uh, reengaging on the trade talks were the Jets and Packers and they did make these trades. And I don't know. I mean, I think the Packers did get a lot as far as draft picks go. Uh, you know, number 13 is a pretty high pick. Uh, second round pick right after it's not bad, you know, going into the 2024 season. So I don't think they did too bad. And a lot of people on ESPN and things like that that I watch that are talking NFL uh, offseason right now are, are saying that Aaron Rodgers and the young 
Jets team is a playoff contender possibility. I don't know if I buy that yet. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, they do got some weapons and, and they weren't bad last year with, you know, a lot of people point to their uh, ex quarterback uh, and they still did decent. So, you know, we'll see how it goes, but I'm just glad that this thing's solidified and we don't have to hear about Aaron Rodgers until the season starts. Yeah. I think that a lot of it's up in the air too. Um, you know, they went out and got a bunch of players and free agency and stuff like that. And this is just me, right? And this isn't the NFL. This is like anything, but Anytime you see a team kind of do that stuff, they're never as good as you think they're going to be. That's a good point. Yeah, that's there's a, that's chemistry a track record issues. Thing. Yeah. Guys, new guys to the system. Now everybody's saying because he has his former offensive coordinator that he doesn't have to learn the system and stuff like that. But then again, like we've kind of seen this too in the last couple of years, the Jay, where we were kind of like questioning if Aaron Rodgers even wants to play anymore. And I'm sure he'll be a little bit energized. But I'll tell you what I'm waiting for. And it's funny because I'm never like this. I couldn't give a fuck about him on the field. I cannot wait to see what happens when this dude has to mingle with the New York media. Because I think he's going to lose his mind. And I think they're going to completely murder this dude. Great point. It's like Green Bay's its own little world out there in Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, the frozen tundra. And now you're just putting a big, big old spotlight on Aaron Rodgers playing for the Jets. So um, nonetheless, all things considered, though, hey, Ed, I must also say uh, as a counterpoint to myself that I, I am interested in seeing how the Jets do. With oh, what do you think? What do you think about the Packers moving forward? Dude, the Packers, I feel like, are going to need to rebuild. I don't I don't see them being being that great. Like, what's what's their quarterback situation? Is it like guys Jordan that Love. they have? Yeah, Jordan, Jordan Love. Love that's, and he's, and he's yeah, decent. Yeah, I mean, he played pretty good in absence of Rodgers last year. So yeah, might... that's a good point. I don't know. I guess you know they they could maybe do dude. okay, but I don't know. <laughs> it, it, here's something crazy to think about, dude. The Packers have not had a shitty quarterback since 1993. <laughs> yeah, that is <laughs> that coveted great quarterback. They've they've had it for a long time from far and from Rodgers. And and here's something really weird, right? They've had Hall of Fame quarterbacks since 1993. They've only won two Super Bowls in that time period. And one that they shouldn't have won. Hey, Ed. No, that's fucking true, too. That's a whole other story for another day. But, but, uh, but yeah, pretty interesting nonetheless uh, as far as that stuff goes. Uh, a couple other little things that I wanted to talk about real quick because uh, I very rarely get to do this, so I'm going to do it right now. Uh, the fucking Knicks are looking amazing up 3-1 against Cleveland. Uh, I usually don't do this, but I do when it when it comes to talking the Knicks. Uh, fuck Cleveland. I love to see that shit. I'm very fucking sour and bitter when it comes to being a Knicks fan. So I'm going to be sour and bitter even more up. Fuck Cleveland. I'm glad they didn't get Donovan Mitchell. I'm glad he's eating shit right now. Uh, I hope Kevin Durant fucking feels like an idiot for not coming to New York, uh, even though he's in Phoenix basically up 3-1 against the Clippers, a team that everybody picked uh, for them to beat. Phoenix, which kind of surprised me. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy to see that. And, dude, I don't know if you saw this or not, just to completely change the topic, but Brian Reynolds got an extension from the Pirates I did see today. that earlier today, yeah. Eight years, $106 million, which is definitely a friendly deal. Uh, but I'm glad they got that done. I really didn't see that one coming at all. And, dude, this is crazy. The Pirates are in first place. They've won seven straight games. They've had nine consecutive quality starts, okay? And I was reading some shit about this, too. So 
A lot of times in sports now when a team's doing good, there's always analytics to back it up or kind of tell you that something's going on. And I've seen this in the past with the Pirates where they're like, they're they're doing really good right now, but the analytics said it's all going to come crashing to earth. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Dude, the analytics right now are like, the Pirates are for real. <laughs> like, their win differential, like their run differential is crazy. Uh, they started out before the, the win streak, dude. They were in like fourth place. And now they're like a game up in first. Yeah, they're like and, in second place over in all of major leagues. Yep, and the only other team that's ahead of them, I think, is Tampa Bay, who started out the season 13 and 0. Yeah. Like, so pretty wild to see that so far. I do hope it continues, obviously. But then in, in another way, it kind of pisses me off because I'm like, of course, the cheap ass fucking Pirates ownership does nothing and somehow still lucks their way into having a good team. Yeah, they're like the Indians for Major League. Basically, yeah. He's like he's like trying to fuck them, but it's back. <laughs> like I, I love those new young Korean dudes we have, like the two yeah, Korean dudes, solid outfielders, yeah. like dudes that can play the outfield, like and having Kutch back, you know, add something special. So Dude. yeah, it's it's enjoyable, man. You know how Pittsburgh is with the baseball. It's like you got to enjoy it while it's here because we knock on wood abound. It's very very early on. We do realize that as well, of course. <laughs> and we might not ever talk about this again, frankly. But dude, <laughs> exactly. But but Kutch's number line is fucking crazy right now. They're hitting home runs. Uh, they're just doing really well, so it, it's pretty wild to see all that shit regardless. But uh, but it is what it is, man. I guess I'll be happy about it in April at the very least because by June it might be I don't even watch them anymore. So, it, you know, that that's kind of fun to talk about. But uh, but obviously the J, uh, we talk a lot here on the show about professional wrestling. And uh, you alluded to something earlier, and I, of course, played dumb with it, but uh, I guess I'll, the floor is yours, the Jay. So let, let's get into it. Yeah, just a, a really big announcement that we're finally allowed to definitively throw out there. Where uh, in the past, and, and this is you know for those listening, we just have to enlighten anybody that might not be a weekly listener that's listening to me as I speak. Uh, we put the podcast through as a sponsorship. My co-founded independent production company out of Pittsburgh called Churchill Pictures. And as Hey Ed knows, uh, Cam, our producer, is also a big part of that. He's on our team and act- actually directed our last project, which is basically a pilot episode for a proposed streaming series all surrounding the world of 1980s professional wrestling and the dying of the, the territories. And, it, and it's all about this dying territory. And if the owner can pull some, some things off and keep his territory from getting eaten up by the WWF of the time, of course, you know, and of course this is a, a fictional uh, story and fictional uh, organization wrestling territory uh, called the NWL, the national wrestling league. And the long and the short of it, folks, the big announcement here on the show is that Churchill Pictures in the National Wrestling League project is proud to announce that we are will be working with Kurt Angle. Uh, he has agreed to take a part uh, in the show uh, as a as a role and also work behind the scenes as an associate producer and consultant and stuff. So as a huge professional wrestling fan from Pittsburgh to be working with a like literal hero of mine. I mean, Kurt Angle, obviously Hall of world famous in multiple Hall of Fame. Yep. Uh, was the only wrestler, professional wrestler to win an actual gold medal, of course, with the broken neck at the 96 Olympics. And he, I could say uh, here on the show, hey, Ed, I was talking a little bit uh, about the meeting with you, but he is, as advertised, uh, Kurt Angle is everything I had hoped for more 
super sweetheart of a guy, really cool, uh, really open to, to working with us. And uh, and yeah, it's a big announcement. We just came from a lunch meeting today as we speak. Hey, Ed, so appreciate you giving me the floor and stuff like this is, is great to talk about and timestamp here on the podcast as well. Uh, congratulations to you guys because that's awesome. I was already excited for, for what you guys have made and, and what you're doing with it. So this is just another reason uh, to be excited about it as well. Uh, and hopefully it does some great things and get you guys uh, your name out there even a little bit more than than what it is now uh, working with somebody like Kurt Angle, uh, multiple time Hall of Famer, WWE Hall of Fame, Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, and of course the Olympic Wrestling Hall of Fame. Uh, can't really argue with that. But uh, but we kind of have to cut this a little short here t- today because uh, the show's so packed up. But uh, but as we talk about pro wrestling, it doesn't end there because we're going to take our very first commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to get into a dual episode of WWE Rivals with Brett versus Bret Hart versus Stone Cold Steve Austin and Stone Cold Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real podcast. Join us next week for episode 161 of the What's Real podcast. We're heading down to the last drive-in with Joe, Bob, and Darcy for another mystery double feature. Then the film-heavy talk continues as we bring back another one of our unoriginal, original, popular segments. That's right. It's the return of the movies that made us. Ha! This is Timothy James with the Withrow Podcast. Talk about Goose or Goose, the GRG, for the 161st episode of the show. They got to talk about Croxzilla, Gangster Cats, Urinating Flights, Bam Margera on the Run, The Champagne of Beers, and Nudist Indiana. Now I'm horny. Goof through goof. All that and much more next week on episode 161 of the What's Real podcast. And we're back, and it is time to talk some wrestling. First up with WWE rivals Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Bret the Hitman Hart. Uh, this is one that, like, I think we can speak to pretty well, the Jay, because we were pretty active watching wrestling in 1996. Uh, this was the first feud that uh, Bret Hart had after losing the title to Shawn Michaels, and he would kind of be engaged in this feud for almost a two-year period when you look at it from beginning to end. And, you know, they had the match, obviously, at uh, Survivor Series, which was Bret Hart's return to the ring. And we were kind of like, okay, let's see how this goes. But we had heard some stuff at the time, like Bret Hart had requested to work with Austin. Uh, and what we saw immediately in that that Survivor Series match was a really, really good match between the two. Um, and they surprisingly kept the feud going, like, periodically. And it all culminated, culminated at WrestleMania 13 with uh, Ken Shamrock being the special guest referee. Uh, it was a submission match. And frankly, it is one of the absolute, I think we both can say this and and agree, it's probably anywhere from top five to top three WrestleMania matches of all time. Love it. Yeah, all-time classic. Uh, my, My outset, hey, Ed, with this was the fact that they kind of brought up this story that we've heard before, as you said, within the company. Brett wanting to work with Austin, but even before that, uh, Brett was lobbying to get Austin into the WWE and Brett would go on to say it was probably a coincidence, but he's like right after, you know, he had talked to Vince about it. Steve had signed with the company. And, and of course, as we all know, he came in as the ringmaster, which was a very bland gimmick, but 
Austin talks about that on his podcast and stuff. He he was kind of brought in to be like the mechanic, as he always would reference himself. Yep. You know, just yep. to be like one of the workforce mid car guys. Never meant to get a push, just kind of a good worker. Yep. But then, uh, you know, not too far after that, he turned into Stone Cold, just had the black boots, black tights, the shaved head, just that classic look. And, um, you know, we talked about it in 96 with the King of the Ring and all that, you know, just for the backdrop of, of Austin's rise. And, and like you mentioned, then it was time for him to get put up uh, against Brett in that first Survivor Series match showed their chemistry and I think Vince and company definitely knew they had a winter feud on their hand and like you mentioned hey I'd kept it going for some time leading to the the classic Mania 13 match and of course uh, I gotta bring up in your house mind games which is the pay-per-view where Austin gave one of our favorite quotes of all (laughs) time if you put the letter s in front of hitman you have my exact opinion of Bret Hart so for (laughs) those of you that can't the shit man was born which is hilarious (laughs) Uh, and of course, they just used, you know, because Brett wasn't wrestling at the time. So they just had Austin essentially come out every week and just fucking kill him on TV, like talking shit, you know, whatever he could to finally bring him back at that Survivor Series. And, you know, it's it's pretty interesting, all the stuff that was going on at this time. This is when Brian Pillman was brought into the WWE as like a major free agent coup for the company. Uh, Shawn Michaels was still there. and But that was all like... You know, Michaels had a good run with the belt, and then there was a bunch of weird, you know, he lost his smile, and then he missed WrestleMania uh, 13. So, in a way, because Shawn Michaels being kind of a dick at the time, uh, if it wasn't for him doing that, we probably wouldn't have got Bretton Austin. We would have got Bretton and Michaels again, uh, you know, in a rematch. Um, and oddly enough, these two had one of the greatest matches of all time. And a lot of people seem to forget the main event of that WrestleMania was Sid versus Undertaker for the belt. And it was when the Undertaker won his very first WWF championship. Uh, kind of weird, dude, when you think about something here. So everybody seems to forget that because of, you know, the classic that was Bret and Austin. Just like everybody seems to forget that Kane won his first title on the night of the Hell in a Cell because the Hell in a Cell completely overshadowed it. So, Which we were there. That was like the only time live that you and I experienced the WWF world title change. Well, at the time. Yeah. yeah. I would eventually see them later. Oh, yeah. That was, yeah, right. That was, the, that was the first that I ever saw for sure. But yeah, uh, but yeah the company was kind of like, dude, it always reminds me when I watch stuff like this. And I like the years. I'm not shitting on them at all. But like the 96 through 98 WWF was so weird. It was going through like a transition period. Uh, You know, there's just so much different stuff that goes on in that time period that it's hard to believe that it happened in like a two year time period because it's crazy. Yeah, how much stuff? Because that's that's the thing that you know. I'm glad you set that up for me, hey, because I wanted to go through some of my bullet points and highlights through this. And one of them was the '97 Rumble that Austin was doing the the TikTok thing, like that, looking at that, his tape. We loved that, dude. Besides, and then um, when De- and Brett came in, everybody went nuts. Yeah, besides King of the Ring, that was like one of the major moments I for remember Austin. for yeah. for Austin being a huge star. Because, like, you could tell, like, especially back then, if they gave you, like, major seating in the Rumble or something like that, like, they were really attached to you. Like, they were going to put the rockets on you and push you. And that's exactly what they did. Um, and they did something really cool. That This is, you know, and I'm always reminded of this again when I watch something like this. Austin and Brett really is one of the greatest feuds of all time. And it's for a myriad of reasons. Not just because it went on a long time. 
But like they did the whole thing where like Austin gets taken out by Brett in that Royal Rumble, but the refs didn't see it, so he gets back in and then eventually would eliminate Brett to win the Royal Rumble. And he's yeah. a heel at this point. And this is really one of the first. And dude, isn't it so weird how this happened like at the same time in pro wrestling? In our entire lives, we never really saw a heel that was like over as a baby face. Like it didn't make sense really. It was good guys were over as baby faces and that's it. But in 1996, we saw two major examples of this in pro wrestling with Stone Cold Steve Austin. And then in WCW, saw like the NWO. Like there were heels, but they were over it with the crowd like his baby faces. So you actively saw fans cheering on heels, which never which, really happened before that. And that really coincided with uh, an evolution for Brett because then he became crybaby Brett. Which yep. was great. And then, uh, you know, a lot of people, I guess, have mixed feelings about it. I just thought it was really cool because it's super original in professional wrestling. It might never happen again where Brett was a uh, baby face in Canada and a heel in America. Well, not you just know? in Canada. He was a baby face everywhere around the world except the for the States. U.S. Right. So that, I mean, that and, was such a unique thing. And, dude, I all and you know me, dude, because I've said this to you numerous times. But 1997 Bret Hart might be oh, the greatest year singular year any wrestler has ever had in the entire business. That's how compelling of a character it was. He was on top. He would eventually get the title back for the fifth time tying Hogan, which was something that was completely unforeseen at the time. Like people just did not think something like that was going to happen, but he did it. Um, He had interesting runs with the belt. Um, He was basically bringing up Austin while sort of still feuding with Michaels, who at that point would dip his toe in and out of the company numerous times for various reasons. Um, So, like, Brett was really, he was Mr. Like, automatic. He was the guy. Like, ever since Hogan left in 1993, the company actively would go back to Brett numerous times. Like, they would put the belt on Diesel for a year in 95. And then who's the guy that took it off him? Brett. And then, you know, Michaels, he would lose the belt to Michaels. Michaels had his run, lost his smile. Who's the guy that eventually would end up with the belt? Brett. And they put the belt on Undertaker. And I think that they realized that that, especially with the character. He didn't need the belt. And it just didn't work. It was like, well, we're kind of losing out on attraction because this dude has the belt. You know what I mean? So they would take the belt from, from Undertaker, put it back on Brett. Brett would ride with that essentially until he would leave the company. Um, but the, the, the major thing that needs to be brought up here, of course, is the match at WrestleMania 13. And it's amazing when you look at this dude, because this match should have never really worked. Uh, it was a submission match. Uh, it, they brought in Ken Shamrock to be the special guest referee. That was his debut in the company. Um, Bret Hart was a baby face and Stone Cold Steve Austin was the heel. It was not for a belt and Austin in a submission match was weird because he never really did any submission holds. So, like, okay, this sounds like a mess on paper. But what you got really was, like, one of the perfect storm moments in professional wrestling history. Um, Ken Shamrock, I know it's weird to people now because they, you know, it's so many years after the fact. But him starting out in the company like that set him up to be a really, really big deal. And Ken Shamrock was a big deal in the company in 1996, 1997. Absolutely. Um, and then you had Austin hitting this hot streak, which is kind of a tricky thing to manage because he's super over, but he's supposed to be a heel. And Brett is a baby face at the time. 
but like the characters kind of getting stale and you don't really know what to do with them after this feud. So they have the match at WrestleMania 13. And again, it's one of the greatest WrestleMania matches of all time. It's one of the greatest matches of all time, honestly. Um, And they managed to do something that I don't know if I can think of a singular time where I saw something like this up until this point, the Jay, where we saw a double turn in a match and it wasn't like it felt really organic the way that it all happened Uh, because you had Stone Cold losing the match in Bret Hart's sharpshooter. He was bleeding like a motherfucker. Um, Bret was beating him up after the match was over. Shamrock kind of put a stop to that. So people were booing Bret and cheering Austin as being like the bad motherfucker that wouldn't quit by the end of the match. So like, I can't, can you think of anything else? It, uh, not up, not after that point, but up into that point that you can remember where like multiple guys switched babyface and heel in the same match. And then obviously as a caveat, it kind of made Ken Shamrock somebody. Exactly. No, I can't, you know, especially just off the top of my head. So all, all great points of abound had uh, my, my kind of perspective uh, leading into all this real quick. Uh, f- first, I thought this was worth mentioning. We're leading up to WrestleMania 13. And like you said, it's kind of the audience getting shaky with, with Brett and, he just was figuring that he was definitely not the the hero that he was being perceived as leading into that year. And a change was needed with his character anyway. And they did the thing where, cause a lot of people think that when Austin stunned Vince, like he was the first wrestler to put his hands on Vince, but Brett did that great did. promo leading up to it. And he said, frustrating isn't a goddamn word for it. This is bullshit and pushed, you know, shoved Vince on his ass. And that and was we, the first time. And like the only other time was you brought this up, Ahead, as far as like little factoids, just speaking of it, there was that time Macho Man put his hands on oh, Vince. Remember that? That yeah. was like the first time ever that nobody yep. remembers. But yep. but yeah, it's worth mentioning that, that Brett's another one that uh, other than that random Macho Man incident years before uh, was the first one to put his hands on on Vince. And, you know, that's that's the time as, as younger fans that we're realizing, like, you know, Vince is the owner and all that stuff. So that kind of stuff is involved in this a little bit. And then, like you mentioned, you, know, you don't need to break down the whole WrestleMania 13 thing as you just went through. But uh, again, just from the Jays perspective here, uh, I, I believe it's one of the best matches as well. Definitely agree with that. And, and it's just a little cool tidbit. Because it was uh, WrestleMania 13 was at the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago. Yep. And Austin, because he says it in this, he calls it his favorite building because of the way yep. the sound hits the wood ceiling and comes back. Yep. So, yeah, it's just a cool thing. But, but yeah, it just all led to this just ridiculous match and, and great breakdown had because, again, putting uh, my thoughts into it, I just can't come up with another match where that happened with the double change by the end. Yeah. I mean, it's I still remember watching that match live. Uh, you were there. We watched that together, actually. Yeah, yeah at your house. Um, it like re- like we were batty about Austin at that point. Like we were re- like this dude is fucking like we were Austin fans anyway before he even came to the WWF. But it was like everything was kicking into high gear. Uh, for like from '96 to '97, there's no doubt that all of us were like, yeah, Austin's the fucking shit. I remember there was a few times like they did in your house. It's time where they did the four way for the belt. And we were like, it was Austin, uh, Vader, Undertaker, and Bret Hart. And I remember us watching that match, and it's like, well, who the fuck do you guys want to win? Like, honestly, Vader or Austin. I don't want Undertaker to have it again, and Bret's had it enough. Like, and of course, Bret would go on to win that match. So and That's an underrated match, it. too, for anybody listening. 
very very that's the one where vader goes hard way and gets like a bleeds everywhere divot in his head just bleeds like a stuck pig yep so it's you know like it's and it's also too i think a lot of people forget this this feud is 100 percent the reason why stone cold got to be the main guy in the company uh he won the king of the ring and he was obviously over and everything but you know vince doesn't really just give you shit especially back then uh but the feud with brett proved it to him like okay this is the dude so like that's what put him in the driver's seat so it's kind of funny too because like as much as and this is what pisses me off about it like how brett always got shit on for not putting michaels over at the end of his career like before he left and you know, he didn't do business and he was being difficult. And it's like, dude, you guys will say all that, but he decided to come back to the company. Then you decided you couldn't pay him and told him to go to WCW. And before all that, he made your main fucking dude for the next decade. Before <laughs> yeah, he guys, We always said, Brett, he kind of has a right to be bitter. He's known as being this super bitter guy, but man, the, the business for, and, and he'll tell you this, I've heard in interviews, I mean, he gives the business so much credit for what it's done for him and he loves it but it's definitely a love hate thing because uh you know look at you know he's known to have lost like all his inner circle yep first and foremost owen and that like that's the most tragic of all the things yeah this this stuff here with like his crazy tumultuous relationship with vince throughout the years think about the heart foundation owen's gone pillman's gone bulldog's gone uh nightheart's gone he's the only one staying Exactly. So, and then he had the stroke and everything and the Goldberg stuff. So yeah, rough, rough life of, of a pro wrestler and, you know, Brett's been through it for sure. But, but yeah, just, just such a fun trip down memory lane. Like we were talking about, man, anything was stone cold and you throw in Brett and, and upcoming Shawn Michaels, you know, it's always great to relive because uh, towards the end of this, they, they kind of bring up the feud. They kind of just skipped their last match they had like the next month after mania and, yep. and, and jumped to Steve Austin becoming the champion at WrestleMania 14 uh, and another cool part, like on a personal level, level uh, years on Brett notes that he and Steve are still pretty good friends to this day. Uh, Austin says he loves Brett and calls him one of the best he has ever worked with. And Brett goes on to say that Austin will text him at times and say he's watching the WrestleMania match and stuff. So that's, that's always pretty cool to hear too, that, that these guys are, are still cool all these years later in real life, even um after all this but yeah great great feud you know definitely highlighted by that wrestlemania 13 match like you said hey that is an all-time top five classic for us we always talk about that match and think how long ago that was when when that was on and we were teenagers watching it and dude it's still surprising when you go back and watch it and you're like damn this really is fucking good like it really holds up well it's like a really really great example of professional wrestling so yeah it was interesting uh, because kevin owens as a talking head actually says his three greatest matches in wrestlemania uh in his opinion were hogan andre uh sean taker from 25 and austin brett from 13 which is super weird because i get it as far as impact goes but that hogan andre match is not good at all (laughs) yeah (laughs) i think it's it's, i think he's probably definitely talking impact i would think so just the meaning of it but that a really, really good episode of Rivals. I really enjoyed this one. It's definitely a rivalry. Fits the the theme of the show for sure. Uh, and it's something that I think is, you know, it's kind of surprising they haven't done it up to this point. But, like, this is Stone Cold's, like, and we're going to talk about the next one here in a minute. He's had three episodes of Rivals. Yeah. And they're all, like, the Austin or the uh, the Michaels one's a little iffy. But, like, Rock for sure and Bret Hart for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Rivalries. 
So let's talk about the other episode. Of course, I'm talking about Shawn Michaels versus Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, this episode is a little bit weird because, again, it's not really a good rivalry. They only really had one match uh, at WrestleMania 14 the next year. Um, so it was all getting set up, obviously, for Stone Cold to get the title, uh, which wouldn't be a big deal. It would be very pedestrian for the most part. But you have to understand a little bit about Shawn Michaels in 1996, 1997. Uh, he had a really poor reputation for not losing titles. Uh, there would always be something that came up uh, to where he wouldn't lose them. Uh, and of course, this was another case of that. Um, their matchup was building up to WrestleMania 14. And of course, this is one of the most more pinnacle moments in the, in the company's history because they were completely getting dominated in the ratings by WCW at the time. Uh, so what does Vince McMahon do? He decides to bring in Mike Tyson, who in 1997-98 was literally the biggest draw on pay-per-view uh, with boxing. So uh, Tyson would come into the company. Uh, a lot of the shit was goofy, but it did put a lot of eyes on the product. And, of course, they had Mike Tyson side with DX, Shawn Michaels, China, and Triple H. And it was Stone Cold versus the world. Uh, they would go on to have a pretty decent WrestleMania match, but it is not an all-time classic or anything like that. Uh, because the at the Royal Rumble just a couple months beforehand, uh, Shawn Michaels wrestled under Undertaker where he defended the title. And he would take a backdrop on the casket and essentially break his back. Uh, or at least really, really screw his back up to the point uh, where he needed to take extensive time off. But he was still the champion, and he still needed to main event WrestleMania. And considering the year before, that he essentially, what a lot of people consider his fake an injury to his knee, uh, so he wouldn't have to lose the title to Brett. And he would end up missing WrestleMania that year completely, other than just making a stop in, at the commentary table. But he didn't wrestle on the show. And I think that there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes where it was like, you need to wrestle this year, no matter what. So he was poised to wrestle Stone Cold Steve Austin. And it looked like all signs were pointing at Austin winning the title. Um, but a lot of people were kind of worried and, and you know, because it happened before. Like, how is Shawn Michaels going to weasel out of this? There's also a funny story that go, coincides with it that they didn't bring up on here, where Undertaker, uh, who was considered the locker room leader at the time, would literally go to tape up his wrist or tape up his hands and sit at gorilla position with Vince because if Michaels did something where, you know, he didn't lose the belt, Undertaker was going to literally beat the shit out of him the minute he walked through the curtain. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, of course, everything went as planned and Austin would go on to win the title and they involved Mike Tyson in the ending uh, because the referee would get knocked out. Mike Tyson was a special guest referee and it looked like he would turn on DX and go with Austin, which is exactly what happened. And they even kind of covered the post-match press conference, which is pretty interesting because I didn't think they were going to do that, where essentially Michaels comes into the press conference and kind of throws a bit of a hissy fit and then leaves and would not be seen again in the ring in the company for, I think it was five Nine, years. 98 to 01. So there you go. Or 02, yeah. But, you know, again, not a huge rivalry, but a very important moment in the history of the company. That, that's what I think it is. We've, we've said that sometimes. I, I think they just have their title with the rivals thing, but they have to just use kind of the ideas and footage they have that don't necessarily fall under the definition of a true rivalry. We've said that pretty consistently other than a few examples, as you also mentioned, they had. But, but yeah, like bullet points here for the, for the J for this episode. Um, I did get a kick out of it when they were talking about the rise of DX and like the brief history of DX. 
the talking heads Gargano's nerdy ass comes in and he's like, I did the suck it chop many times in grade school. I didn't know what it meant, but I did it. It's like, good job, Gargano. Like, thanks for the insight there, Johnny Wrestling. Yeah, Johnny jo- G. Jo- Johnny Crotch Chop. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it was that, that had me cracking up. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, it, it was just another, uh, as we say, dude, rose-colored glasses, trip down memory lane and nostalgia and everything, just covering, like, 97 to, to 98 time frame here. And, dude, and did you notice went down. Did you notice one of the omissions from this? What was that? They skipped their King of the Ring 97 match that they had. Oh, yeah. Remember, a young fan with Down syndrome would essentially almost come into the ring and Shawn Michaels played super babyface and kind of like resolved the situation, uh, which is surprising because like this is the same guy that I've literally seen, you know, wrestling a match and fans are yelling at him. And he's like, suck it, you fucking cunt to a a fan. (laughs) An elderly woman. yeah, like, and it was caught on camera and everything. So, like, well, that was a time it, too. Vince is on commentary, and he's like, "Oh, this," because remember, we always got a kick out of that because it was just him riffing. He was calling the Down syndrome kid a uh, special Olympian. Yes, and we're like, "Dude, yep. he's not a special Olympian." Like, like he's, he's I, just I a guess kid he didn't with know Down syndrome. Yeah, he like didn't know how, how else to say it, so he's like, "Oh, Michael's here with the special Olympian," and it's, it's like, just uh, like he's like out of overweight. <laughs> I mean, I mean, God bless the young man. Let's yeah, just say that. Yeah. Just one of the weirder things. I mean, I have a funny feeling that's one of the reasons why they didn't show this. Yeah. yeah uh, like, because of that. They didn't want to cover up. that at all. But, yeah. And, you know, I mean, it is what it is. Like, this is a pretty decent feud. Uh, not a great rivalry, but it was basically the way. Like, it's kind of crazy that it took all this shit to have Michaels agree to give it up the belt. <laughs> like. Well, yeah, dude, you just Tyson and all this other shit. You you made me think of another omission, actually, that goes hand in hand to to your point with that prior match was their run as tag team champs. Yeah, because that was like another up, part of were, their storyline. Well, they, they were tag like the rival going, thing. They were tag champs going into that match, right? But it but they couldn't really do anything with it because Michaels kept leaving and everything. And if you remember, uh, Michaels kind of disappearing and Austin being tag champs by himself is why the character of Dude Love would originally show up. Yeah, no, exactly. And another part of this was the DX public workout, which was like a media event promoting WrestleMania. And there was like 10,000 people in, in downtown Boston. And yep. and Michaels was like all pissed off because he, he felt he like got hit with a battery. So yep. he's like, there's no security. So he like goes back to the limo. And uh, I guess Shane McMahon was with him. And he's like trying to convince him. And then Bruce Pritchard comes. And then, like, they're just like, okay, we just got to improv. Sean's not coming. He's saying there's no security. So Triple H and Tyson kind of take over and start the brawl with Austin. But then Michaels comes out of nowhere. And, and that's the thing with some of these guys, because we talked about this with Orton Head. That, and it's you know it's good for them, because they could still be assholes and just kind of deny things. Uh, but Michaels, like, accepts that he was an asshole. And he says a quote in here that was kind of funny, where he's like, yeah, I was a young and immature drug addict, so I was absolutely freaking livid. <laughs> so he's yeah. just, you know, he was just having a, a tough time. It was a tough pill for him to swallow, which he admits that he was losing his spot and, and not wrestling. It made him depressed. You know, even in his book, you know, as big of a Shawn Michaels fan as, as I am, hey, I've watched every documentary, read tons of books, and I, I definitely uh, know that he has said that he was committing, you know, contemplating suicide even at, at, at certain times like this because he was so depressed. Yeah, I mean, he was a complete mess on pills at the time. 
Um, it's it's really weird thing too that they talk about this kind of stuff because like yeah because they talk about Triple H babysitting them and carrying them to the to his room all the time and everybody yeah. says without Triple H, Sean's career would have probably never had a second coming and stuff. And isn't it weird that WWF always seems to skirt the blame for this? Like they allowed him to wrestle like that. They didn't yeah, right. send his ass home. Like. I mean, they needed him at the time. Don't they didn't fire his house. Yeah, but that's what it was. They just yeah. kind of like they encouraged his shitty behavior. So that's why it stuck around for longer than it probably should have. Well, because Vince had a special place in his heart for him. He was as good as he was. And at the time, he was the one carrying the company until Austin came around. Yeah, I mean, with other people. I mean, they still had Undertaker. They still had Brett and other guys. But uh, he was just dead set on having Michaels be the guy. And this yeah. is after the run with the click and everything like that. And it's kind of funny because look how that all worked out. Like they couldn't really do shit to Michaels until everybody left. And then it was like, okay, like he kind of had to play ball a little bit more. Cause you know, you're only dealing with a couple guys as opposed to like five. So, and five major players in the company. So going um, in with that, another cool part of this, that the talking heads, I think specifically JBL kind of bring up is like the fantasy booking side of things with that because yep. Shawn Michaels was in his prime. You know, he's still at a decent age, especially for, for pro wrestlers on, on his level that he had a whole lot of years in him before his second comeback. And so you miss like a, a longer Shawn Steve rivalry. You miss yep. a Shawn Rock rivalry. And we all know the bad blood there that has since been, uh, you know, they buried the hatchet, but um, you know, I don't know about issues. that. Well, yeah, because I think we talked about the uh, Young Rock episode that yep. the Rock specifically wrote in Michaels as a character, but um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know the dude, so I can't talk on that. But but nonetheless, yeah, it was it was just interesting that they brought up that fact. Like, what if Sean never got hurt? But uh, you know, we always say you can say that with anything. It's just the fantasy talk. Yeah, and again, a decent episode. Nothing mind blowing, but it was a pretty good two hour segment with this and the Brett rivalries overall. Like. You know, fun, nostalgia stuff. I remember most of it. I know you do, too. But it, it was overall, it was pretty enjoying. Like, I was like, yeah, I really enjoyed those, too. It was a good night of, of shows for them. And and obviously, this is the season finale for WWE Rivals. So a good way to finish it off with a, a double dose of Stone Cold. Yeah, for as big as profession, professional wrestling fans as we are, hey, Ed, these are easy shows to watch. And uh, I'm right with you. I've, I found it entertaining, and it was pretty breezy, both of these. Absolutely. So we are up against our another commercial break here. And whenever we come back, we're going to be talking a double dose of Fridays at Midnight. First up from 1982, Gary Sherman's Vice Squad. So stay tuned for that and much more. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, Yins, guys. That's right. It's your boy, the J. Once again, as the great Chris Jericho used to say, representing the dub R question mark, the What's Real podcast. And I am here today for local Pittsburgh area independent production company, Churchill Pictures. And the Jay can admit, for those consistently listening week to week, we have ads for Churchill Pictures. You may be rolling your eyes, but this time, this week, I have a gift for you where you can watch some of our feature films for free for the first time. For those that don't know, Churchill Pictures is based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, established from the bond of two childhood friends. Churchill Pictures envisions creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Check all the information out at churchillpictures.com today. And as I said at the top of the ad, your chance to see their two feature films for free 
just subscribe to YouTube's Churchill Pictures channel. Go to YouTube, subscribe to the Churchill Pictures channel, and you'll be able to watch the full feature film, the 2012 Silver Ace Award winner from the Las Vegas Film Festival, Deference. Deference, the full movie, is for free on our YouTube channel. Then our second feature film, The Unsung, is now available for free on Tubi. Tubi is a free streaming site, just has a little bit of ads, but you can get used to them. Check us out on Tubi. All you have to do is register for Tubi, or if you're already registered, go on ahead and sign in on Tubi and just search The Unsung. The Unsung is now streaming for free on Tubi. Check us out today at churchillpictures.com or YouTube Deference, Tubi The Unsung, Churchill Pictures. We create worlds. And we're back, and it is time for our first installment of Fridays at Midnight this week. We are talking 1982's Gary Sherman-directed Vice Squad. An unlikely Hollywood hooker helps a detective set a trap for a mutilator pimp. And that sounds pretty simple, but this is kind of the the reason why this movie is really, really interesting. It's a 97-minute movie, again directed by Gary Sherman, who is one of the more underrated directors, in my opinion. Same director as Dead and Buried, and he also made uh, Deathline, a.k.a. Raw Meat, with uh, Donald Pleasance. Um, Very, very consistent filmmaker. And as much as I like Dead and Buried, I think Vice Squad's an even better example of his talents because this one just hits the ground fucking running. And the reason why I like this movie so much is because it takes place in the sleazy world of pimps and hookers in the Vice Squad in Los Angeles. And Wings Hauser plays a pimp named Ramrod. Ramrod. Who is literally on a fucking rampage from the very <laughs> like no moment, other <laughs> dude from the moment the movie starts until the end. This dude is going completely fucking batshit bonkers, and it's it like it's crazy. Like even the fucking dialogue in this movie is pretty wild. Like everybody's a scumbag. Everybody treats everybody like shit. The cops are assholes. The prostitutes are fucking assholes. The pimps are assholes. The Johns are the biggest pieces of shit on the face of the earth. And what you get is just like this completely, like how we talk about like uh, like uh, uncut gems, like with that frenetic pacing. Yeah. That's exactly what this movie is. Like you get small moments of like the police at the police station or like a couple characters talking. And then it's like, then here comes Ramrod fucking running his truck through a building or kicking a door in or they're trying to set him up and it fails again. Or he does crazy shit and gets away, jumps out of windows like he's literally threatening other pimps and pieces of shit like like just robbing people blind left and right, beating the shit out of women, cops. Like, it just doesn't stop. And it's like, I, you know, there's not many instances that I can think of where I've seen a movie that's quite like Vice Squad. That's why I picked it this week for this. Yeah, it's a, a great choice. But, yeah, Wingshauser is Ramrod. Uh, at the outset from the J here, I must say, does steal the show. Uh, season Hubley does do great as Princess. And, yes. Um, you know, Gary Swanson is, is Walsh, the, the cop. 
does pretty good. But man, Ramrod, as you mentioned, hey, Ed, like I, I love this the initial setup of of it and everything where uh the the hooker ginger that's friends with princess she she calls her and she's telling her you know he did it again and she's like you have to get away from him da, 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 da. and then the next scene he comes to the the hotel where ginger's at and he knocks on the door and she's like he's no, doing the pimp talk yeah he's like doing the pimp talk she's like you're just gonna beat me again but he just sweet talks her and she opens the door and he just he's like you stupid bitch <laughs> grabs, yep. his, grabs her and face he, and just annihilates her he beats her to death with a wire hanger oh brutal and dude fun interesting note here that prostitute ginger played by nina blackwood who in 1982 was literally nationally famous because she's one of the few very original mtv vjs Oh, there you go. That's a unique tidbit there. Um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of other good character actors in this uh, fill it out. And and like you said, it's it's basically just looking forward to Ramrod's quote unquote set pieces throughout this. Because I'm just yep. you're just kind of waiting for him to come back just to see his his mayhem. Because as you mentioned, they they use Princess to set him up uh, th- that initial time after she after he, uh you know she finds out that he was he definitely killed ginger which he doesn't even realize at that point he just thinks he beat her he's like all i did is beat the bitch she's like she she's dead you know but she sets him up and that whole scene where he escapes from the cops and like you said jumps out the fucking window jumps off his building and stuff you know then he goes to that that dude to, that has like a face tattoo to get a gun and as you mentioned he intimidates that dude to find out where the pimp is and the pimp's a pussy. Ramrod just, it's like that fat black dude. He just beats the shit out of him to get information. But yep. yeah, it's just, like you said, dude, it's a great call to compare it to to something that the Safke brothers do in, in modern cinema with this, where it is just this frenetic pace, like few nights in CDS LA underground shit. Um, dude. But yeah, it's definitely a blast for, for you know, all things considered. Uh, interesting factoid and something I wanted to bring up here from Letterboxd. This is from Wraith Ape on Letterboxd. Wingshauser's vocal on the opening theme. That's right. He sings the song in it. Uh, and he brings up the, the, the saying, everybody's swimming in the neon slime, which is a great <laughs> way of explaining what this feels like. Yeah. Uh, the perfect intro to a luminous trawl through the sleazy darkness of L.A.'s underbelly, as well as theme song duties. Hauser also stars as homicidal pimp Ramrod, who terrorizes the city's sex workers like a cowboy from hell because he's in the cowboy getup. And yeah, everything, something yeah. we haven't mentioned either. And dude, this is mind blowing. I, I know you don't know this. I, I've heard this and read this before, and I think it's extremely interesting. Martin Scorsese literally picked this as best picture of 1982. Oh, wow. Did not know that. Really interesting. Yep. Yep, it's it, and it's not just subject. Like when you're watching the movie, the way it looks is really cool. Like there's a lot of like out on the fucking boulevard shots in Los Angeles with like the nightlife around and like when it was the more seedier elements in L.A. and Hollywood. Um, really like and dude, there's we we've talked about this numerous times here on the podcast, but every time we've talked about it, it's been about New York City. This is one of those movies where, like, Los Angeles, the seedy L.A. West Coast kind of scene plays a major integral part as a oh, character sure. in the movie. Uh, and it's and it's really interesting, too, because, like, there's all those scenes, like, at the, at the police precinct. 
where like it it comes I've never seen a movie do this as well as as this particular movie where like they're trying to set up like the local precinct and the jail is like a literal fucking madhouse like crazy prostitutes people are fucking that, the, arguing the one detective the, comes out he's like my fucking paper clips. somebody took my paper clips yep. where the fuck he's like going ape like where the fuck are my paper clips yep it's it's fucking amazing like it the way is. that they set that that shit up like it's really well done it adds like a thick atmosphere to this movie and it's like the characters too like it's a frustrating watch and i don't mean because it's poorly made but it's like you know, you have Ramrod, who's running the streets like a pimp Jason Voorhees, just destroying everything in his wake. Then you have the princess character, who is completely in his sights because she tried to set him up and it didn't work and he got away. And she has to work. Like, they set up a really interesting scene, too, because the cops are like, you better you better stay hidden. And she's like, I can't do that. I need to work. And the, the cop goes in her wallet and she's like, You'd have to give me four months salary to make up for what I'm going to make tonight. Yeah, he's he's trying to help her out, give her a loan. And then he's like, oh, okay, well, never mind. (laughs) So she goes back to work, and then they're like, we got to find Ramrod. So it's like this game of, like, Ramrod's trying to find Princess. Princess is trying to work and avoid Ramrod, and the cops are trying to track both of them down. Yeah, exactly. So you have, like, this constant cat and mouse game littered with pimps and hookers, Denzians, other cops, and everybody's just looking for each other. And, of course, it all culminates at the end. Well, which, that's the thing, too, is is what Princess goes through in this. I mean, she brutal. is just brutalized because they, you know, she has her pending cocaine possession thing. So the cops are like taking her in. They use her. And use her. And, you know, they offer her a pardon in exchange for her help catching Ramrod. And she initially refuses. And then the detective Tom rips open the body bag of Ginger's corpse and puts her face in, in the corpse's face and he's like, look at your friend. This is what he did to her. And that's and a, that's really good acting in that scene. She's like, and, you know. And they set her up at the very beginning of the movie like she's living a double life. Like she has a daughter. Yeah, right. Yeah, she and, has like a suburban house. And the fucking cops like, we'll take your daughter away. You want that to happen? Like he really starts out like a scumbag yeah. in this one. And then he kind of starts to like her. And I've read uh, some stuff in this, and I think it's a really interesting uh, thing to, to bring up. But Gary Swanson, who plays Tom Walsh, the detective, is like channeling kind of like a Steve McQueen-ish kind of character. Like an older Steve McQueen type guy, like a dickhead. Like, but like, you know, like he's he eventually comes around, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, a lot of really interesting actors too. Uh, Pepe Serna. Shows up in this, who is one of the henchmen from Scarface. He's in a ton of other stuff, too. He's also in American Me um, and Car Wash. But, like, you know, Kelly Piper is also in this one, too. She's in Maniac, Rawhead Rex, Hannibal. Um, You know, and there's a really good cast here. Everything, like, this, I always credit this as being, it's Wingshauser's greatest performance. And Gary Sherman, who's fucking as rock solid of a director as you can get making something that's just completely filled with sleaze like and it it's it's a lasting effect like ever since i've seen vice squad it's always stuck in my mind and every time i've gone back and watched it i'm like you're always kind of amazed at how 
like, dude, Ramrod's literally up there with the greatest pieces of shit in cinema history. <laughs> like, agree. of all time. Yeah. Like, it's not even, like, say, dude, give me an example of somebody that you hate as much as this fucking dude watching this movie. Yeah, it's funny. Back-to-back weeks, it, it, it's kind of a you know very different performance, but a parallel to, to Bad Lieutenant in LT. Yeah, I mean, dude. In I, a different you know, way, you know? It, it's... Man, like but this dude's even more, you know, this dude's on there's no level. There, there's absolutely no redemption whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, for and they don't, they're not even trying. No. Like, he's a piece of shit. He's, he's only going to get worse. Yeah. Like they literally, you realize with him, like death is a certainty. There's, you're not going to arrest this dude. Like yeah. he ain't going to let that shit happen. Like, and dude, the one thing I like about this character too, that, that kills me with him through the course of the movie, he he ends up like driving multiple vehicles. And this dude does not give a fucking shit about nothing. He like runs over prostitutes. At the very beginning of the movie, he has like this massive truck on huge wheels. He like drives over cars and like does not give a certifiable fuck about anything. He's looking for princess and he's trying to get weapons. And he'll like strong arm dudes out of their weapons like, like yeah. it's he just doesn't give a fuck it's crazy how yeah, there's there's that, that one point when she's it's at the beginning when initially she's setting him up and she picks him up uh you know princess to ramrod and he's walking her out of the bar to put her in her truck and take her to his place and there's like the hag outside and she's like don't yep. go with him and he's he he has a line i wish it was in front of me i'm paraphrasing but he basically says i'm the devil baby Dude, and the way he says it's great. Yeah, he he pulls out the lighter. He's like, "You like fire? You like fire? Because I'm the devil, baby." And yeah, just walks. It's, like it's great. So, like, basically, it the, the first ten minutes of the fucking movie, he's threatened to light a homeless woman on fire. <laughs> yeah. He's murdered a prostitute a with a death wire with hanger. <laughs> yeah. Has literally fought policemen, <laughs> threatened drug dealers. Yeah, <laughs> like, this dude, right? Like, Attempted th- rape. Yep, there's tons of that. Just, dude, the movie is just absolutely... And I mean, it's a movie about pimps and street life, but this movie's absolutely brutal to women. Like, absolutely. Like, the characters are all pieces of shit. Like, the, that one... Like, when he goes to get that car off that one dude, the black dude, yeah. and he's, like, getting... He's like, motherfucker, who the fuck you think you talking to? He's like, and 500... He's, like, walks towards the cars. He's like, no, nah, no. Nah, the blue one, motherfucker. He's yep. like five hundred bucks ain't enough for the goddamn El Dorado. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the the part with the uh, gay leather club owner, Fast Eddie. We were talking yep. about him. He gets the guns from him, but he asked to identify uh, Princess's former p- pimp, who's Joe Dorsey, who's just this like nerdy fat black dude. And uh, you know he gets brutally interrogated by Ramrod and then castrated. Yeah, for Christ's sake. And then, like we said, Princess going through it. Uh, this is the portion that you were mentioning, hey, Ed, where she's working and she picks up this goofy ass, terrible looking uh, John and she's just like sitting there like a fish and he's he didn't like the sex. So he is disgruntled and forcibly takes his money back and like beats her up. Dude, just rolls. I, I have to bring this up because this is the it's the only thing in the movie that makes me laugh every fucking time I see it. So she's out on the stroll and this dude pulls up in a Mercedes and uh, and she's like, hey, baby, like, da, 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 like giving them the prices and everything. He's like, well, I wanted something different. She's like, well, what did you want? He's like, you ever do a golden shower? And she's <laughs> yeah. like, 
She's like, sorry, but I just went to the bathroom. He's like, well, I got a six pack and a hundred bucks. And she's like, well, move over, make room for Princess Running Water. Yeah. <laughs> and dude, one of the, you know, talk about this just other world that is created here and this crazy underbelly situation and just all these, you know, like I'm referencing like crazy dark set pieces. At one point, she ends up at this billionaire's house in Beverly Hills yep. and is instructed to dress as a bride. And weird it's all it's all weird and mysterious. And he just, uh, this dude uh, is basically like a butler kind of character. He sends her to the this parlor and this elderly guy is just laying in a, in a casket. And scares and the fuck out of her. Yeah, he scares the fuck out of her and she's screaming and he's like, I told her not to talk. Get her out of here. And she's just like yelling and, at dude, him like, you and he's, creepy and he's, fuck. I hope you die. And he starts crying. He's like, yeah, Get it's, it's such a creepy, and then, weird scene. And, and then it is kind of funny because the, the driver dude. Yeah, he's like, he's I'm like, off tomorrow. <laughs> he's like, are you working tomorrow? She's like, I don't know if I'm ever fucking working again. And he's like, well, because that's my night off. And I want <laughs> yeah. to see her. And then she like says something, and then he's like, <laughs> like yeah. and she, because she's like, oh, he's like, a cab is getting called for, and she's like, I'm not paying for it. And he's like, oh, don't worry, it's taken care of. Like, uh, but like weird characters, goofy shit, like just unbridled fucking violence. Uh, cops that are always two steps behind. Like it's, but dude, Vice Squad is a hell of a flick, man. So I'm glad we it actually is. got yeah, to, I was glad to, you to put it. it on here. It's a wild one. So as we do the J here on the show, hit us with a tagline for Vice Squad. On the street, the real trick is staying alive. And as we do here on the show, we have a five-star rating scale. I'm going to give Vice Squad four stars. I'm right behind you with a solid three and a half. All right, so that is Vice Squad, one half of our Fridays at Midnight Double Feature. We are up against another commercial break, but whenever we come back, it is time for part two as we go to 1994 with Ray Liotta and No Escape. So we'll be back with that and much more right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. This is Ed from the What's Real Podcast for Physically Fit with Kurt Angle. At Physically Fit, we are committed to providing our customers with the highest quality, better for you protein snack nutrition the entire family will enjoy. In a time when product quality seems to be compromised by price, we are determined to be unique and offer different offerings, superior ingredients, great taste, texture, and quality in every bag. We strive to inspire everyone on some level and share values of faith, family, respect, and excellence daily. Our goal is to be a small part of your life, personal growth, health, and happiness. We consider each customer to be part of our growing physically fit family and encourage all to live life to its fullest. Set new goals daily to better yourself physically, financially, emotionally, and spiritually. Don't compromise your values and always be kind and respectful to others. Our motto is healthy people, healthy planet, because we believe that providing great tasting nutrition makes for a healthier you, and a healthier you makes for a healthier planet. Strive for a better tomorrow and live physically fit. Go to physicallyfit.com today. And we're back, and it is time for part two of Fridays at Midnight here with the 1994 Martin Campbell-directed No Escape. Um, oddly enough, the Jay, I don't know if you realize this or not, Martin Campbell made a ton of shit. Uh, he's the director of Casino Royale, Green Lantern, 
uh, Goldeneye, The Mask of Zorro, Edge of Darkness, Cast a Deadly Spell with Fred Ward, um, and of course, No Escape. And No Escape stars Ray Liotta. And in the year 2022, so this takes place last year, a ruthless prison warden has created the ultimate solution for his most troublesome and violent inmates, Absalom, a secret jungle island where prisoners are abandoned and left to die. But Marine Captain John Robbins, convicted of murdering a commanding officer, is determined to escape the island in order to reveal the truth behind his murderous actions and clear his name. Also, you have Lance Henriksen, Kevin Dillon, uh, Kevin O'Connor's in this one, Ian McNeese, uh, Ernie Hudson, of course, playing a big role in this one. And dude, I got to tell you just off the bat, because of course, uh, I was reading through Letterboxd, right? <laughs> and this somebody named Ira on there was like, Ray Liotta is in prison on an island with Kevin Dillon. There are also some other reasons he's desperate to escape. <laughs> That's hilarious. But dude, okay, I'd seen this movie before, right? And I it'd been a really long time. But I was really impressed with this one. Like I really enjoyed this fucking thing. I always though, had a special place in my heart for it. That's why I gravitated towards it. And I was the same way. I haven't seen it in a long time. And I thought it held up very well. And dude, it's weird because like Ray Liotta does good as like the action hero kind of thing, but like there's nothing in it for him. Like he doesn't have good dialogue. There's no, it's it's very like lackluster for like a good actor like Ray Liotta. They make him a bit but, of a badass though. No, well that's one, like he doesn't have good dialogue or good, you know, it's just him like murdering people, which yeah. is fine. But like still very entertaining flick. Like it holds up. The special effects in the movie aren't bad. There's one stunt in this movie that blows my fucking mind. And it's at the very beginning, whenever they get first put on the island and the outsiders basically accost fucking Ray Liotta's character. They chase him to the cliff. And dude, that stunt man is the baddest motherfucker that's ever been a motherfucker. Yeah, just on a wire. Dude, that shit, like, any normal person would have died just from sheer terror for doing that. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, like, there's a lot of cool jungle scenes and chases and shit like that. All pretty well done. Um, The characters all kind of look cool. Uh, You know, there's, it, it, it just works. Like, I was really surprised at how much I liked this one. Yeah, really, really good villain in this with uh, Stuart Wilson as Merrick. Uh, he plays a really good bad guy, and and like you like you said, uh, with Lance Henriksen involved, we we all love our boy Lance. He's definitely in yep. the What's Real Hall of Fame as the father that that runs like the peaceful group, which which it is cool. Like the whole story is cool with the the island of prisoners and everything that, that goes on. And and one thing I do want to mention too, hey Ed, was the pacing of this is really good. I mean, it, it, it is just, really it, good. It doesn't really mess around. Gets them to the island, and it just goes from there. Where like you said, I mean instantaneously he's like getting hunted by these savages and those are the outsiders and he like we're mentioned falls off this humongous cliff and, and waterfall sequence and, and and there's there's a lot more to it like the the one great character actor jack shepherd he plays uh Dysart, and, yep. and he's like the community's like uh, inventor and science guy yep. so they're using him to try to build a boat to escape and stuff so 
Uh, there's a lot to it. Uh, another really good villain is Michael Lerner as the warden. Uh, yeah, what you, a piece you, you of You want to see him get his comeuppance. And then, uh, of course, Ian McNeese's character King is a turncoat. Uh, so you got that thrown in there, and that's a cool scene. And of, and of course, you know, King and the warden get fucked at the end, which is great. And I like the uh, Kevin O'Connor's uh, Stefano character, like yeah. the guy who get who can get anything. Yep. Like that's who they have the running joke in this where he always wants Leota's boots. Yeah. He's like, I'll sign a contract. He's like, get the fuck out of here. And he's and like, look, I want, he's like, I want your boots. He's like, now I have this thing. It's called merchandise, whatever. And he's like, you can keep your boots. It's just that when you die, they go to me. Yeah. <laughs> and and Kevin Dillon does really good in this as Casey, like the young, bright tailed, bushy eyed character that kind of latches on to Ray Liotta's character and annoys him, but then kind of wins him over. You know, and of course has the the spoiler alert movie from uh, the mid nineties here, but he has the the death scene. You know, he's kind of basically sacrifices himself when Merrick makes them face off each other to the death because he yep. knows that that Robin's Ray Liotta's character could be the one that that gets him off the island eventually, hopefully. And, and, and do, throw in, as we've said, uh, Ernie Hudson is always great as well, being in this too. This is my biggest problem though with this, and it's a big one. The movie's awesome. It's a lot of fun. But the end is fucking terrible. I thought that. Like, it just kind of ends. It's one of those things. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It meant like you don't it, like they, they should have at least done the, the thing where it's like, you know, like Captain J.T. Robbins took the helicopter and l- would land at the blah, 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 blah air and force yeah, drop base. off the, the and, information that shuts down the, the island and yes. the corrupt warden is exposed. Ex- Yes, something like the the warden was sent. Like uh, ironically, the warden would be sentenced to the island where he would be killed by Merrick, or you know whatever the fuck they want to yeah. do. Like, but uh, but that was my biggest problem with it was the fucking ending. But other than that, it's exactly what you want it to be. Yeah, like some great fight scenes when when the outsiders do their raids. Uh, you have all that classic stuff, like classic nineties, just practical stunts and things, and you know the. the the setting is really cool for that too. Cause they, they do like zip line shit. Cause there's all these different buildings and wooden bridges and shit in the community. So it makes yep. for a good, you know, really good action sequences and like fight scenes and, and the raids. Uh, another highlight too. Uh, this was towards the beginning when, like you mentioned, Ray Liotta's character first gets accosted by Merrick and, and his group, the outsiders. And so he's like, you know, I'm going to put you to the death with one of our biggest fighters and it's one of those things where this big ass crazy looking dude comes out and uh, Ray Liotta is at the other end of the bridge. And the dude does this whole big sequence with like this staff with a knife on it. And Liotta just throws a knife at the dude and just hits him right in the, in the fucking heart. And the dude just and, falls in the water. And, and Merrick's like, like well, I didn't expect that, but that was very cool or whatever. You know? And then they, they start because he's like a wisecracker. Yeah. And like he, he lands in the water and he's like, you know, he's like, well, he's like, I want you to stay here. Uh, we we have an open position. Yeah, and he's like, what are you just open for you? And and he's like, he's like, I'll do it. I'll go with you guys. He's like, just one question though. He's like, where are you gonna find another lifeguard? And everybody's laughing. And he throws him in the water and just like grabs <laughs> and his steals gun. the gun. Yeah, and is like, I'll fucking fight a whole army of dudes. Yeah, <laughs> like, but yeah, I mean, Leota's good in this. Like like I said, the the material is not the greatest for him, but it works. Uh, you know, the movie has good pacing. It's entertaining. It's fun. You won't be bored with it. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff goes on. It's not like they're doing all the shit that doesn't make sense. 
they're careful not to overuse the warden and his firepower too much in this. They kind of just let them do their thing. And, you know, you don't see a ton of movies like this, frankly. This is definitely like a throwback. But it's kind of like this would have been good for Thursday Night Prime, except for the fact that it has a way bigger budget than than stuff that we would typically see on Thursday Night Prime. Yep, exactly. Yeah, with the dystopian future uh, kind of thing going for it, which, as you mentioned, talking here in 2023 is hilarious as it takes place in 2022, which yeah. is just a funny things in, in, in movies. But uh, but yeah, um, Gail Hurd, huge producer, partner of James Cameron. She was one of the producers on this. So, so that was pretty big. Uh, and it was the third collaboration between Hurd and Henriksen after, of course, Terminator and Aliens. So uh, cool that she was involved as a major producer. And, you know, that kind of makes sense, too, that this is this is pretty solid and well put together, you know. So, you know, definitely a good te- team uh, all around with everybody involved from the director to the producers to the, the cast. And this was a crazy little tidbit, hey, Ed, that I stumbled upon from bringing this up on Wikipedia, uh, being big gamers. And, and this is the height of our teenage gaming, a video game based on No Escape. The same name, No Escape the Video Game, was released in 94 for Sega and Super Nintendo. That's so wild. I wonder I'd if never, I ever I wonder if I ever played it. I, I don't know. Don't yeah, it. yeah, exactly. I was thinking that too when I when I stumbled on that. But yeah, neat neat little factoid. But yeah, like I mentioned, overall this was something that, that kind of always stuck with me, always stood out uh since I first saw it in the nineties. And you know, I figured Fridays at midnight, as is the the point of the segment to bring some of these more obscure, lesser known gems up. Uh, pretty much a B movie, but like a high level B B movie, like you said, it's a big budget for the time, and and I think it really is is just fun and entertaining overall. Yeah, absolutely. So the J hit us with a tagline of "No Escape." All right, No Escape. The year is twenty twenty two. In the prison of the future, escape is impossible. Survival isn't much easier. No guards, no walls, no escape. And as we do here on the show, we do a five-star rating scale. So the J, what are you giving No Escape? Giving No Escape a solid three and a half, hey, Ed. Same. Absolutely. Yeah. So totally agree. Pretty solid week here for Fridays at Midnight. Yeah, fun, uh, fun flicks. And a programming note, uh, this is the end of Fridays at Midnight for the time being. Uh, because as we are about to start another month, I guess we can announce it right now. We will be bringing back the movies that made us. So uh, we're, we will. I don't think we're going to do double features of that, especially with Joe Bob going on uh, at the same time. So we'll probably just do one of them each and every week uh, throughout the month of May. So I hope you guys have enjoyed Fridays at Midnight. It definitely will be back. It has a ton of traction, and we have way more stuff that we want to do for that. Uh, but the movie fun does not stop as we are going to take another quick commercial break. And whenever we come back, it is time to head on down to the last drive-in for the brand new season with Joe, Bob, and Darcy with a Lucio Fulci double feature. We're going to talk about 1979 Zombie and The Beyond from 1981. So stay tuned for that much more. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Herman James with the What's Real Podcast. Finally giving me something to do here. It's been a while since I talked to you guys, but I'm actually helping them out doing an advertisement for advertisers. That's right. If you would like to advertise here on the What's Real Podcast and join the team, just shoot us an email today. We got cheap, easy, and affordable rates, and we can hook you up with some kick-ass advertisements. Just hit us up at Gmail. It's at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. That's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Join the team with me, my brother Timothy James, the wizard behind the boards, Cam, the J, and Hey Ed. 
is to What's Real Team for some advertisers. Hit us up, whatsrealpod at gmail.com today. And we're back, and we're down at the last drive-in with Joe, Bob, and Darcy for a Lucio Fulci double feature. First up, 1979's Zombie, a.k.a. Zombie 2, a.k.a. Zombie Flesh Eaters. On a Caribbean island of Matul, white doctor David Menard is trying to stem the tide of cannibal zombies that are returning from the dead. Arriving on the island are Anne and reporter Peter West, who are looking for Anne's missing father. The pair soon find themselves under attack from zombies. Uh, zombie stars Tisa Farrow, uh, Mia Farrow's sister. Ian McCullough as Peter West. Richard Johnson as Dr. David Menard. Uh, Olga Car- Carlotas in one of my favorite parts in the entire movie. Uh, Al Cliver stars in this one as well. Uh, even Lucio Fulci shows up as the newspaper editor at the beginning. And... This is a weird one for me. I love this movie. I've always loved this movie. Um, this is an absolute cult classic to me. I thought it was a really good way for them to start off the season of uh, Last Drive-In. Um, and I've actually met most of these people, too, uh, through the years. So it's a really, really cool movie that I like to go and revisit, usually in October. Um, but for some reason, it is pretty good for the uh, you know this time of year, basically, or even the summer. Um, one of the things that I like about this movie the most is a lot of it takes place in the daylight. So you're seeing a lot of typical stuff that you would see in a zombie movie, but you're seeing it in the daytime. Uh, the movie also features a couple absolutely iconic and legendary scenes in the world of horror, such as a zombie fighting a shark. Um, and of course the, the cover zombie is legendary as well. And Olga Cartelos getting attacked by a zombie and getting her eye pulled into a piece of wood. That's literally one of the most brutal things you'll ever see. Yeah, they don't pull away. Um, this movie has absolutely fantastic special effects by Giannetto De Rossi. Uh, so there's a lot of throat rips and everything. And uh, I don't know if you realize this or not, the Jay, but Giannetto De Rossi actually did the uh, special feature or special effects for um, High Tension as well. Oh, nice. Um, oh, that was that. one of the, one of the last things that he he would work on. But. Uh, I was a little disappointed in Joe Bob for this one because they did a talk show kind of wraparound this time, like the yeah, Tonight Show that. or something like that. And they didn't really spend a lot of time talking about the movies. Uh, they were talking. They did bring on Ian McCullough. And they talked the movie, uh, you know, about the movie there. Uh, he brought the very first Fangoria magazine, which some of his behind the scene photographs were printed in. Uh, that stuff was really cool. But we also got Peaches Christ during this as her manager, quote unquote, her outside of drag. That was kind of pointless. Dan Housen from AEW showed up, and that was also kind of pointless. Um, but obviously, the movie here is great. It's nothing really deep. It's just one of the most iconic gore films of all time. I know a lot of people that consider this to be the greatest zombie movie ever made, which I don't agree with, but I do really, really like it. Um, there's not a lot like it. They start the movie off in New York City, and they end up in the you know the Caribbean. Um Richard Johnson uh, playing the the uh, the Doctor Menard character is really really good. Um, 
Al Cliver shows up in this one too. Uh, as you know, they they use his boat to get to the island. Does Ian McCullough's character Peter West and Anne, which is Tisa Farrow. Um, it's a lot of impending doom because you know where they're going. You know what's already there waiting for them. And what you get is a bunch of stylized scenes of zombies scrambling around everywhere to really cool music by, by Fabio Fritzi, who was featured uh, live in the studio with Joe, Bob, and Darcy. So I, I like thought that. that was really that was cool. cool. Yeah. Um, and I've always wanted to see him in concert, so I'm still hoping that I actually get the chance to do that someday. Um, but, you know, really cool movie overall. I mean, it's not anything deep. There's not some major storylines or anything like that. It's literally what we've already explained to you. But Zombie is one of those movies that absolutely you've got to see it to understand why it's such a big deal. Um, at least to me, anyways. Like, I love this movie. Um, it's one of those movies, too, like we say, that uh, just be what you promise to be. And that's exactly what, what Fulci Zombie is. Exactly. And, and like you said, it has a lot of also known as <laughs> So for those that don't know, it was adapted from an original screenplay by Dardano Sacchetti to serve as a sequel to George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Uh, but then ended up being released in Italy originally with the title Zombie, Z-O-M-B-I. And it got a, uh, you know, there was a lawsuit during the origination of it uh, from George Romero. Uh, because they didn't, and uh, Dario Argento was also involved in that too, because he was the Italian producer of Zombie uh, or Dawn of the Dead. Um, and it, it's weird, man. I don't know how many people realize this or not, but a lot of the stuff that you see from this movie, like the poster and everything, were not created until it came to America. So uh, whenever it got on the, the U.S. soil, it was renamed Zombie. Because it was Z-O-M-B-I in Italy, but here it was just called Zombie. And the cover zombie, you know, one of the major zombies in the movie became the cover zombie or the poster zombie. And the words, we are going to eat you, was used as the tagline for this on the poster. And that was all due to the Jerry Gross organization, who is, we've talked about him on the show before. Um, but he's one of the more, more legendary grindhouse producers and drive-in producers, where he would just... Uh, get things from up foreign countries and re-release them with different titles and things like that with more exploitive kind of artwork and cover work. And this one absolutely was a fixture on 42nd Street in New York and in the drive-ins of America for a, a large portion of the 1980s. Yeah, and another another really cool aspect to Zombie 2 in, is the fact that they kind of go back to the original definition of a zombie, oh, the, which the voodoo zombie is, yep. yeah, it comes from like voodoo and, and that type of thing, as opposed to the the creation of George Romero with with the style of zombie that he uses, and we all know as horror movie fans in the zombie film subgenre with The Walking Dead and hundreds, literally, of zombie movies. Now they all kind of can have their own quote unquote rules, but uh, I, you know, for, especially for this coming out in '79, I thought that was a really cool aesthetic. Is the fact that the zombies, you know, are part of the voodoo kind of mysticism side of things. And, and that's why they're coming from the Caribbean island and everything. So, yep. you know, it kind of makes them different and stand out. And dude, this is a movie that has a considerable amount of lore for me uh, growing up because this, the cover zombie that I was talking about, the old big box VHS, like that cover freaked me the fuck out. So like, I wouldn't even rent it. Yeah. Um, so it took me years to see this one after the fact, but ever since I saw it for the first time, I, I became a big fan of it. 
I like Lucio Fulci in the way that he does his movies. And there is something that I can promise you with Fulci movies. No one makes it out. Absolutely no one makes it out ever. It's always a downbeat ending. It's not the hero saves the day shit. They don't. He does not do that. Um, a lot of the stuff in his movies do not make sense. This, however, is not one of those. This is, I feel like, Zombies probably his most uh, accessible movie for people um, where they can watch it and like, okay, I get what happened because a lot of his other movies are just very weird and don't always have the most uh, common narrative to it and people just don't seem to like that. I mean, you, the, Fulci's very much love or hate. There's generally no middle ground. Um, or people will like some of his movies and then hate the rest of them. Um, but it is weird because like, I think that Fulci's one of those guys too, that his movies are either really, really, really cool or they're really, really, really bad. Um, but during this period, it's certainly when he was hitting on all cylinders, um, kind of an underrated director. As far as I'm concerned, he's most well known for his horror stuff, but people tend to forget that he started out making sex comedies and Westerns. Um, so he's had a lot of different work through the years. And, you know, his catalog is pretty interesting because of that. It's not just gory horror films, but that's what he's most known for. For sure. You know, we we respect that with with just having that diversity and being able to do varying projects, you know, just like a true artist, uh, which, you know, you definitely have to give Fulci credit for that. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, hey, they told a pretty cool story uh, for the scene at the end, uh, which is like you mentioned, just doom and gloom where the zombies are basically migrating to New York city. And there's a guy on the radio talking about people getting attacked and then he gets attacked live on the radio and everything. And it pans up and it's a shot of the Brooklyn bridge. And Joe Bob tells the story where of course they, they didn't get permission to shoot up there and everybody's going to Fulci. Like, look, man, you know, we have to have all these zombies in makeup because they, they, they gathered all these homeless people. To play yep. the zombies, and I guess just uh, fed them and gave them alcohol, booze. Yep. <laughs> yeah, the classic move. And and they're like, dude, we have to get all these homeless people in in wardrobe and up on this thing. You're not gonna have enough time to shoot this before you you get busted. And Fulci's like, yeah, you're right. And they're like, okay, well, what are we gonna do? He's like, we're gonna try it anyway. And they ended yep. up having way more time up there than anticipated. So they got a ton of good shots uh, on the Brooklyn Bridge. So that, so that dude. was a cool story. There's a ton of guerrilla filmmaking that occurred at this time in New York City. Oh, yeah. Because as we've talked about, the city was fucking crazy. Uh, and they didn't have police. Like, you know, the, the city was strapped for money. So, like, they didn't pay police to really do things. And you can get away with shit like this. Where now there's no fucking way. You'd be arrested in 13 seconds trying to do some shit like this now. Yep. Um, but because of that, you get some of the more legendary moments in horror history and some really cool stuff that uh, necessarily people weren't expecting. So it adds a little bit of production value to the movie. Uh, and there is something too about the Italians. They love shooting shit in New York city. Um, so it's, that's very much what America means to them in a lot of different ways. So, uh, but yeah, this is zombie. One of the coolest movies you could possibly see uh, in the world of horror and definitely a great way to open up the new season of the last drive-in. Uh, but we already mentioned the tagline in this one is we are going to eat you and we do everything here on a five-star rating scale. I give zombie four stars. 
All right, hey, I'll throw you my rating. I just wanted to mention one last thing because uh, another guest, like you said, with the Joe Bob first episode, which we will uh, say we, we found out through uh, Twitter that they're going back to their typical format with, with Joe Bob talking about the movies and, and sitting in his, his lawn chair next to the, the trailer and everything. Uh, so they kind of did this just to open up the season for something different, this kind of talk show thing. But they also had on Bobcat Goldweight as a guest. And I really yeah. like Bobcat. Who did like a stand-up routine. Yeah, and, and that's what I wanted to bring up because I was cracking up because he was talking about specifically at one point the underwater scene. And he's like, yeah, you know, the director's like, okay, so we're going to have you as a scuba diver. Uh, take your top off. We're going to have you go topless. And you're going to have to go down there by the shark. And she's like, are we going to be in a cage? He's like, nope, no cage. And then and then he's talking about talking to the stuntman that's playing the zombie with the shark. you know, And he's like... So what am I supposed to do here? And he's like, oh, just go up to the shark as a zombie and we're going to throw on some blood. He's like, how does the shark know it's fake blood? <laughs> like, like he doesn't, but it's okay. Yeah, it was a good little bit. Uh, so I wanted to mention that. But yeah, I'm right I'm right with, there with you. Hey, Ed, I always looked at, at this as a classic as well. So I'll go with a solid four. All right. So now it's on to part two of The Last Drive-In. Uh, another Lucio Fulci classic, in my opinion. Uh, this one is from 1981, and it is called The Beyond. A young woman inherits an old hotel in Louisiana where following a series of supernatural accidents, she learns that the building was built over one of the entrances to hell. Um, now, The Beyond is how I mentioned that uh, Zombie is one of his more accessible movies. I think uh, a large portion of people consider The Beyond to be his best movie. I don't. I think Gates of Hell is his best movie, um, but The Beyond is number two to me. Um, it's not very linear. It doesn't have a typical storyline. There's a lot of random shit that happens in this movie, but The Beyond is one of those movies that you need to see and experience for yourself. It has some of the most insane, unbridled moments of violence you will ever see. There is a scene where a woman gets attacked by spiders in this that makes oh, no sense. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that's gross. And it, does and it goes on forever. And it has our favorite theme or our favorite sound effect, if you notice yeah. the J, where it's like. Yeah. So they do that. Uh, there's a little girl that gets shot in the fucking face and her head gets melted by acid. So that's pretty fucked up. Uh, tons of zombie gore, eyeballs popping out, people getting thumbs stuck in their fucking face, uh, just gross, disgusting shit. Um, now this is another one too. That's interesting to me. Uh, David Warbeck is in this one. He plays John McCabe and Catrona McCall, who I was lucky enough to meet at a convention years ago. And she is literally Fulci's muse. Uh, she's worked with him several times. Um, he has a really bad reputation for working with actors, especially women, um, but not with Katrona McCall. He, for some reason, did not treat her that way. Um, and it also features one of my favorite Fulci characters in this one, Cynthia Morales, Emily, who is the blind girl with the dog. It makes no sense why she's in the movie, but she looks really fucking cool. This movie has a shitload of cool style to it. The lighting and atmosphere is amazing. Uh, major portions of the movie were shot in New Orleans, uh, which you can tell, like, the house that they're in and stuff. That's all old-school New Orleans stuff, like plantation houses and stuff like that. Um, but this movie, for what it doesn't have in storyline, makes up in atmosphere like a motherfucker. It's a dreadful type of movie. 
Um, and it's another one of those movies, too, that you can pretty much tell about halfway through that nobody's going to make it out alive. And it culminates in a final scene that's been debated many times by fans throughout the years. But it's pretty much like they end up in hell. That's the gist of it. Yeah, so the door, the door opens. Yes. And there is the Gates of Hell trilogy that or the Gates of Hell films and like, you know, Gates of Hell's like that as well. The Beyond's like that. Uh, you know, th- there's always like this theme of hell through a lot of his movies. And what that basically means is it gives Fulci the opening to kind of just do as much weird shit as he wants to, um, which for a lot of directors would be a fucking mess. But for him, it's good. He's good at making like the dreadful, gross horror movie. And it just works for that type of thing. And it's, you know, the Italians are a little bit nutty when it comes to making horror movies, especially during that time period. And Fulci's right there with the best of them to be like, no, it's I don't want to use linear storytelling. I I think of it more as like a collection of dreadful imagery, um, which is a perfect way, I think, to describe what the beyond actually is. Yeah, exactly. As Wikipedia mentions, following its release, reception for The Beyond was polarized as contemporary and retrospective critics have praised the film for its surrealistic qualities, special effects, musical score, and cinematography, but note its narrative inconsistencies. Horror filmmakers and surrealists have interpreted these inconsistencies as intentionally disorienting, supplementing the atmospheric tone and direction. And as we're discussing, The Beyond is ranked among Fulci's most celebrated films and has gained an international cult following over the ensuing decades. But I, I always like this one, too, because of, of those things like we always talk about, just the world the film creates, the sur- sur- surrealistic style of everything. Um, well, you dude, know, once again, Fabio's uh, score. Yeah, it's I've always viewed the beyond as something and I've never heard anybody write about it like this. It's just kind of the way I've always seen it. So the movie is so focused on the gate of hell being opened. Right. And, you know, but I think and I've always kind of watched it like this, that that's not necessarily the case. It seems like to me that once that gate opens to hell, that like that, like hell comes out of the gate. Yeah, that's when you notice like she finds the blind girl and then you start dealing with all this weirdness. So it's like instead of them going through the doorway and into hell, it's like once that door's open, it's like hell comes out. That's why it's like weird shit's happening in the movie kind of comes across like this weird fucking nightmare almost. But that's I'm like, is it a nightmare type environment or is this like what hell's like? Like it's utterly weird and gross and fucked up and creepy and you know like the music adds to it and everything else so like there's that's what i like about it being open the way that he makes it and like the non-linear storytelling because like a lot of stuff's are open into an interpretation and it really doesn't hurt the movie whether you feel that like the way i just explained it or not like it's you can interpret it however you want and it still watches pretty well yeah yeah i agree because you know it's like the the blindness gimmick comes back, you know, and it just, they get blinded at the end and, and kind of yeah. disappear, which that, that was a cool part where they, they come to the, the hospital at the end and it's completely deserted except for Dr. Harris and Joe's daughter, Jill. And then of course all the zombies and Harris gets killed by the flying ga- uh, glass. Yep. And that's, that's a good, good death scene. Uh, one, one funny thing that I just remembered. So I'll just throw it to you on the show. Hey, I was actually going to bring it up to you because it did have me cracking up going back to, to Bobcat. And goes in with this with the, of course, 
pre-fermented awesome uh, dude doing the soundtrack, the composer, Fabio. He did a Fabio joke and says, uh, watch out for that goose. Yep. Did you hear? Dude, I was dying because he was like, yeah, nobody's going to really get that. And I'm like, we do fucking yeah. Bobcat because, uh, you know, <laughs> Fabio famously uh, was put on a roller coaster in the front seat uh, for its grand opening and a, a goose broke his face. Yep. And it's the funniest thing. He comes back around to the uh, where the uh, roller coaster parks and he's all bloody with like feathers all over him. We've come full circle. (laughs) Yeah. The the, uh, very topical uh, comedy there by Bobcat from something that happened in 1994. (laughs) Yeah, it always killed me though. (laughs) But yeah, it's, but dude, it's, Uh, this was a very weird show because of like the, the Fulci stuff and just yeah, and they did you know, that. That skit was horrendous. That was terrible. I a hundred percent agree. Oh, yep, that, that was, was horrible. And hey, bless Joe Bob and every like. I love these guys, but I'm like, can we not do mess. stuff like that? Like, yeah. I really kind of, I was a little disappointed because Fulci is very interesting, at least to me. And there's a lot of stuff to talk about when it comes to him, especially with Zombie and the Beyond. Um, they kind of didn't do that this time, um, which I get. It's for a season premiere. I'm just glad that they showed them. Um, but yeah, The Beyond is literally one of my favorite Fulci movies. And it's like, you know, again, there's not a lot of middle ground with it. People either hate it or they're like, no, I get it. It's fucking rad. Like, it's it's just one of those things. And I'm definitely somebody that's a fan of Fulci. I respect the stuff that he does. I like the atmospheric horror and I think that like the Italians and especially Fulci were geniuses with how they build atmosphere in their movies. Yeah, exactly. So you could say what you want about the scripts and other things like that, but like there's great filmmakers that don't know how to build atmosphere like Fulci does. Yep, great point, Hey, because I'd, I'd say that's the biggest quality of this film is is its atmosphere. And and again, just going back to that word, it's the, the best way to describe this movie, the surrealism. Absolutely. So. Uh, when it comes to the Beyond, the J hit us with a tagline. So the tagline for the Beyond, behind this doorway lie the terrifying and unspeakable secrets of hell. No one who sees it lives to describe it, and you shall live in darkness for all eternity. Very cool. So, and as we do here on the show, we have a five-star rating scale. The J, what are you giving the Beyond? Three and a half. I'm going with four and a half on this one. I oh, think nice. it's a classic. Uh, in horror, and it's one of my favorite Fulci movies. So, a uh, pretty decent way to start out Joe Bob uh, in the last drive in. Uh, and we will be doing it again next week because their new season has officially begun. So, we are up against our last commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to wrap up the show and talk some goofs. So, stay tuned for that and much more right after this, right here on the What's Real podcast. If I can change and you can change, everybody can change. It's Halloween. Everyone's entitled to one good scare. Every man dies. Not every man really lives. When there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. What do all these quotes have in common? They're all part of the movies that made us. Returning next week. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs or Goofs. And we're back, and it's that time once again. So the J, what do we got this week on the Goof Front? Ah, it's a beautiful day. Hey, out here on our own private Serengeti. 
Again, there's some uh, alligators down there now. A lot of different animals migrating here. The pack of raccoons over there. Hey, out, stay away from those squirrely bastards. Remember, what do we call them? The uh, the the dumpster dogs or something. <laughs> I don't even remember at this point because yeah. it's the, I've I've officially hit the witching hour for yes, sure. The witching point. hour. We are here, and there it is. The newly erected monument statue of Kurt Angle here down at the lagoon. That's awesome. There's a fountain around it. What a beautiful setting. Hey, you know, I'm loving the angle statue. Well, well deserved, Kurt. Thanks for being part of the family. And he, here we are at the waterfall, the ever flowing waterfall of goose. And welcome to GRG 160. Hey, yeah, as we roll into the 160s here. And we're starting off with one of our favorite things, and that's animal talk and the Florida man. And we're going to Florida. I did send this to your Facebook messenger. Hey, Ian, if you want to see a picture of this fuck. Yep. A wildlife photographer in Florida discovered one of the Everglades' most famous residents, Croczilla, a 14-foot American crocodile. Ladies and gentlemen, stay the fuck out of Florida. Holy shit, this thing looks ridiculous. The largest largest croc found in the wild. In comparison to alligators, crocodiles have a more narrow snout and they get bigger. And they're saying that although the crocodile looks fierce, that they are very timid. So, you know, it's one of those things that the J might take one on for, you know, six. No, you won't. No, you wouldn't. They just nope. that you'll they will literally rip your arm off, like barely trying. Well, it says the, the open mouth is not a sign of aggression, but usually a way of regulating body temperature or a yawn. Um, And as they say, you need to go after their their jaws. Yeah, I mean, I still wouldn't be testing it. Like, especially if I saw this fucking thing, I'm not going to be like, you know what? Yeah, the 14 I've never, footer. I've never encountered a crocodile before, so I figured for the first time I should go against the biggest one in the fucking country, most likely. Yeah, but that's how you be- become known as a legend, hey, you know? I'm good. I'd rather be known as somebody with two arms and two legs. Dude, I just sent this to you. Um, it's another one of those viral videos that we can't tell. It's like alien nightmare fuel stuff. Oh, great. I but love these. They say, can anyone explain what this is? And just explaining to our listeners, if anybody's ever seen Creepshow 2 in the segment called The Raft. The Raft. That's what this is in real life. And the audio is hilarious because it's some dorky southern kid. Like, hey, mom, mom. And she's like, what, you little shit? He's like, what is this? And she's like, what? And she's like, oh, shit. <laughs> and they're like, I don't know what that is. And this thing looks straight out of a John Carpenter film. We, we mentioned Rob Boutine last week. It's another Rob Boutine week with okay. real life Mother Nature special effects. Hey, Here we go, the J, because I'm bringing the info for you. It's the Apliza Vicaria, also known as the Black Sea Hare in California. Black Sea Hare is a species of extremely large sea slug, a marine word I can't fucking pronounce gastropod mollusk in the family Apsildae. It is the largest sea slug species. Would you eat that? Never. Yeah, I th- I, for six figures. Hey, man, you re- do you need some money, bro? <laughs> yeah, <I'm laughs> to, yeah, we got angle, man. Gotta pay yeah, that's the man. true. That's true. Let alone so Nocturus is still pissed. You know, we haven't brought back uh, Thursday Night Prime because of our budgetary issues. So. Yeah, well, I mean, sorry, we can't afford to gas up the tank. The fucking, you know, gasoline's getting ridiculous again. We spent so much money so fast. I, I just yeah, sent so you this bad. one. It's one of them uh, Sphinx cats. 
but it's a, a cat with gang tattoos and it's looking for a new home after being rescued from a Mexican prison. Do you see the picture? <laughs> I did. It, it has uh, like the, the eye tattoo and then it has a full chest piece with like yeah, so, playing cards. <laughs> so if any of you out there needs a cat who is definitely down for La Raza, it is this fucking guy. Yeah. The, the Shinobi <laughs> says that pick go hard. Streets was calling bro. Al Gato. <laughs> it's uh i mean i you know I, I don't really know how they would do it because it was really a one-off but if they ever want to make a sequel to american me i'm sure that they could fucking have this cat starring in it yeah el gato just with the tats Hit, him and danny trejo star in american me too yeah the the, the pussening in, in other news we we've been dealing with this with terrible airline service but on a recent American Airlines flight, a passenger was arrested after urinating on another traveler during the flight. Which is weird because, I mean, I've never been uh, arrested, but I piss on people all the time. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. But if, uh, you know, if you self-identify as a yellow lab, you can maybe get out of it. You know how it is nowadays. Yeah, that's true. It's very possible. Like he lifted I would at least one try. leg up. I'm like, I'm a, I identify as a, a Labrador, so you got to let me do this. Yeah, this is sad news. As a friend of the show, we've brought him up before. Uh, he's in more trouble. Hey, yeah, that's our buddy, Bam Margera, of course, of Jackass Name oh. and Diva La Bam. He is <laughs> on the run. He's currently on the run, hey, y'all. Uh, Hulk Hogan got into it. He said, damn, Bam, I wish you were still with us. I sure would love to hang out again with you, my brother. <laughs> And Bam Margera responded, I'm alive, brother, but miss you too. <laughs> I'm, I'm alive, brother. I'm in the woods. I'm in, in the Westchester, woods running from cops. But yeah, unfortunately, uh, his substance abuse issues are still ongoing as he broke into his own family's house, his brother, Jesse, and they got into a skirmish. And uh, dad, dad, Phil, was there as well. Uh, so yeah, there's a, there's a warrant out for his arrest. Hey, yo, poor Bam. So a friend of mine posted this on Facebook, my, my buddy James. And like some of the comments were killing me, right? Because if you've seen Pam Margera, he's he's like in bad shape. And it's like somebody's like, he lives among the trees now. Somebody's like, better have the mercenaries on standby. Somebody's like, let me know if you need suggestions on what to drag behind the slow moving donkey cart that it would take to catch him. <laughs> yeah. And I and I was like, time to send Mario Cobretti into the Westchester forest. <laughs> yeah. He just like like dude, could you imagine like like the cops show up and they're like, oh no, Bam is escaping over there in the trees, and he's just like slowly shuffling into. <laughs> yeah, it's the like woods. in slow motion. He's <laughs> like he's, he's zigzagging. Like yeah, he comes stumbling yeah. back out after they thought he was gone. Like some fucking 380 pound Westchester cops, like, how are we gonna catch him now? <laughs> like, why don't you guys tell me he's a pro skateboarder? Like, because he's drunk and out of shape and hasn't <laughs> skateboarded in 18 years. Yeah. He's just, he's literally just been doing drugs. I don't know if you heard this one straight from Brussels. Shout out to uh, JCBD, the Brussels, the muscles from Brussels, uh, the champagne of beers. Hey, Ed, which was, I believe, Miller High Life. You're goddamn right, son. I drink them almost every weekend. It's it, it leaves the French producers frothing. Uh, the guardians of champagne 
will let no one take the name of the bubbly beverage in vain, not even the U.S. beer behemoth. And for years, Miller High Life has used the champagne of beer slogan. And now this French producing company is destroying all kinds of beers. So it looks like it's, you know, like a counter thing to everything that's going on with Bud Light and Kid Rock. Yeah, well, I'm glad they finally figured it out. It's only been called the champagne of beers for 47 years. Well, you know how it is in Brussels. It just got there for the first time. Yeah. They're like the you know Dude. you see like the kid in the village with like the Mets won the 2002 World Series. Yeah. And they didn't even make the playoffs <laughs> that year. Yeah, that, that's where all the backup shirts go. Like, <laughs> yeah. Dude, now okay, I know that you need money, right, for for budgeting. Various so things. Hey, oh. What do you what do you think about this? We should just make a shitty fucking champagne. And then call it the beer of champagne. Yes, I am in. And as we say on the show, doing a podcast, putting on the internet, that is a motherfucking copyright. So you can't steal that idea out there. That's right. Our creative license is out there into the ether. You fucks. Last up, hey, Ed, we're going off with one of our favorites. That's nudists. So, you know, definitely ah, yeah, get nude here. Nudes. And uh, this takes place in Berlin, uh, where Vienna nudists oppose plans for a cable car over their beach. Uh, nudists in Austria are up in genitals. See what they did there instead of being up in arms. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> about about plans for a cable car that would pass over a popular beach on the northern edge of Vienna, where clothing is optional. The country's Austria press agency on Friday quoted nudist Barbara Hasgel saying she filled for her privacy. For people from the car can take fo- photos of my pubic hair and or b- bush with their cell phone cameras. So a good quote there from nudist Barbara Hostel. Well, I just like they'll build it and it's like for some reason just 14 year old boys keep riding this thing nonstop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's and it's like Stan dad Stan's dad's uh trailer when yeah. they took away the internet. <laughs> the 14 year olds, it's it's uh ectoplasm. Do you see the ghost yeah, that was just in there's here? There's ghosts ghost this whole car is haunted. <laughs> but as I say to my brother from another my die. Between Croczilla, all kinds of gangster cat shit, urinators on the flights, our boy Bam, get well soon, Bam, you crazy fucker, get out of them woods, the champagne of beers and nude Venice, Vienna chicks, witching out, goofs are goofs. So if you guys are listening on iTunes, feel free to give us a five-star review. Helps out the algorithm and gets more eyes and ears on the program. Of course, you can listen on all your favorite podcasting platforms, such as Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and each and every week on churchillpictures.com. If you have something you'd like to add to the show, you can email us at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, that is whatsrealpod at gmail.com. But before we get out of here, here the J revving it up. So the J, take it away. Revving it up, hey Ed. As you know, my wife calls me something that sounds a lot like Croxilla, but it's a letter off. If you put S in front of Hitman, you know what I think of him. If you take the R out of Croxilla, you know what the J's wife calls Eam. As you could tell, I'm delirious, but got to do my usual <laughs> shout outs. <laughs> to love the show to the uh, man amongst men, the producer amongst producers, the wizard behind the boards and the blood flowing flesh. Cam, we appreciate you. That consistent, constant weekly. 16k sound of the what's real podcast podcast and see how I'm <laughs> the podcast <laughs> the project we're, 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 we're creating our new fucking genre here. this is where we're getting the, so close to getting like a big time show and then they hear this shit and they're like yeah yeah and they're they're like, never amateurs. mind these dudes are a mess <laughs> yeah but love y'all if you're hearing my voice right now stay safe stay healthy you'll hear the j next week 
Yep, shout out to our producer Cam for all the hard work he puts into the show because as we know here on the program, nobody beats the Wiz, the J, Clang Clang, Tag Team Championships of the motherfucking universe of podjasting. Uh, still undefeated, never going to lose them. Uh, and that's it for us this week here on episode 160. Don't forget to join us next week for episode 161 and beyond. So stay safe, stay healthy, and keep your pubic hair out of the fucking Australian fucking carts or whatever the fuck they're called. I don't know. Austrian uh, cable cars. Yeah, you got that's what That's what I meant. With ectoplasm, so, uh, glazing it like it's a Dunkin' Donuts factory. Yeah, so... See you next week right here on the What's Real Podcast. What's real? What's real?